if we are building a deep learning team, for example, or machine learning team, without a method towards where it's going, then we would have created a hammer in search of a nail. And so really, what is it we're trying to develop and what is our methodology? What are the qualities that we're looking for towards that outcome when looking for people and building capability in that space? One of the key aspects in artificial intelligence, machine learning, in the last few years has been around productionizing and scaling the use of these services. And for that, at Data Futurology, we've created an event, which we've run a couple of years now. We call it Advancing AI. So we want to be advancing the deployment of these systems in production at scale. We also want to advance the use of these capabilities throughout the organizations. And we always cover the most relevant and best topics that we can find. And we're definitely keen to see you there in the next one. This year's 2022's Advancing AI is going to be in person in Melbourne, April 6th and 7th at Crown Promenade. I hope to see you there. The lineup is looking fantastic. Please check it out on datafuturology.com. It's all going to be geared around productionizing these systems, scaling them, and increasing the adoption of AI within organizations and outside. April 6th and 7th, Melbourne, Crown Promenade, Advancing AI with Data Futurology. Thank you so much. See you then. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This is Felipe Flores. Today, we have a very special episode for the International Women's Day, and I'm joined by three legends in the industry. We have an amazing panel today. So we have Michelle Pinheiro, who is the Acting Chief Data Officer at ANZ. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Hi, Felipe. I'm well, Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining. We have Catherine Galifa, who is the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at WorkSafe Victoria. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? So good. So excited for today. Thank you so much for joining. And we have Dr. Michelle Joy Lowe, who is the Head of Data and AI from Reese Group. MJ, as I know you're called, how are you doing today? Well, thanks, Felipe. Great to be here. Ah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about teams, talent, diversity, and it's going to be a great, great episode. I thought, uh, Michelle, maybe you can kick us off. I wanted to ask you about how can we build data teams that align with the organization's data strategies? Any thoughts from your side? And then we'll hear from the rest of the panel as well. It's a good question and something that um, I am actually working through at the moment. I think For the most part, that's usually done organically. The the teams kind of form and transform as a data strategy plays out. Um, But ideally, um, a data strategy should then inform a data capability strategy for the organisation. And then that strategy would speak to the design of the workforce and the, the roles and the capabilities and the skills that are required to be able to enable that data strategy. 
And, and often I see uh, data capability strategies which are straight out sort of vanilla flavoured, let's just uplift data capability across the organisation. Um, and I think that for me, I like to see a capability strategy that has a specific outcome in mind mm -hmm. that is in alignment with that data strategy. And, and um, some data strategies are more ambitious than others. So, for example, um, if you've got a strategy that's really going down a path of, of data mesh or something like that, you may need to go into a team transformation that's akin to the kind of transformation that Agile brought across organisations where it's just a complete reconstruction of how um, teams are put together in, in an organisation. So you might find that, you know, like in a data mesh world, you're starting to bring in roles like data publisher and things like that. So I think the more deliberate you make that um, to be designed to your, your data strategy, um, the better. Oh, so good. So good. And um, MJ, how about from your side? How, how do you align the, um, or any tips around aligning the business strategy and the, the data strategy? Yeah, it's, I think I loved your answer too, Michelle. I think I couldn't agree more about really charting a course towards, you know, an outcome. And so I've been at race 18 months and part of what we're doing is just that at the moment. Um, and along the way, I think you know, I'm a big fan of Barnum Street and Charlie Munger. And this is saying around, you know, if you largely avoid being silly, you come out the smarter end of it. And if you kind of turn that question on its head, in trying to figure out a team that is aligned with data strategy, it helps to think about the pitfalls to, to avoid. Um, and some things that come to mind uh, for us anyway, you know, is starting with a methodology. If we are building a deep learning team, for example, or machine learning team without a method towards where it's going, then we would have created a hammer in search of a nail. And so really, what is it we're trying to develop and what is our methodology? What are the qualities that we're looking for towards that outcome when looking for people and building capability in that space? The other thought that comes to mind too is in data, it, you know, there is so much that calls for organizational attention. So there is a temptation to dedicate resources to dealing with the noisiest parts of the business. Um, but that by its very definition is very reactionary and not particularly strategic. Um, and it's so it's very unlikely that people uh, are shouting strategically in, in a business. So while it is something that calls for attention, I think being quite to taking you know the time to consider what actually that noise is about is really quite important. Um, and I think the last thing to avoid is is building a team for today. You know, data companies and analytical demands grow really fast, and in my experience, um, it is hard to estimate correctly the rate of growth in data services and the total cost of ownership of meeting all that demand. And so even though a team might start out well-intentioned, they can end up being that firefighting squad over the course of two or three years. Um, but all that said, on a more positive note though, I think something that is universally helpful is cultivating the discipline to work backwards. Um, you know, starting from the company strategy, like Michelle said, and working backwards to figure out where you will and won't um, be leveraging data and that 
therefore informs the shape of the analytics team and capability because uh, it's important to build one that's got longevity and clear business outcomes to deliver. Oh, true. So true. I love that. That is excellent. Thank you. Um, Catherine, how about from, from your side? How do you manage the, the balance between the, the strategic work and the, and the reactive work and, and, uh, and trying to navigate through all that? It's um, such a timely question because we've just finished an implementation of new org design for our um, intelligence management function and um, probably the key pain point that we were looking to address was that balance, achieving that balance between the strategic um, program that we have around data and analytics strategy and the core business support that we need to provide um, to the, the full enterprise. And it was a real pain point for our people um, who struggled with trying to do a little bit of each um, and similarly challenging for our business stakeholders to understand how we were choosing um, the prioritisation of our resources. Um, so in that um, redesign of, of our function, we really looked to align our teams to work types and so we created three functions, one that was purely focused to data analytics strategy, essentially building out our um, modern architecture and maturing our, um, our analytics processes and our way of working for the future. Um, and then a insights and analytics function that would support the core business of today. Part of that being a focus on the business performance and the deep dive analysis and, um, you know, that true business partnership and then really um, isolating the operational performance. Sorry, there's a cat. Operational, we're all used to that now, aren't we? Exactly, that's <laughs> great. Operational um, tasks, reports and process, data processes um, that are critical just, just keeping the lights on. Um, and that brought much greater clarity to our teams. They knew purpose was um, from an individual perspective and similarly for stakeholders we're then able to run a prioritization process within those three verticals make it very clear the trade-offs um, that were being made around allocation of resource um, and from there to sort of pick up on what the Michelles were referring to before um, it's around making sure each of those teams are really clear on what their strategic goals are um, and then what's the skills, capability and culture as well that we need to develop for those teams in order to be successful um, and deliver to those outcomes and then what's the development roadmap um, in order to fill those gaps. So we are very much in the midst of that journey at the moment. That's great. And in those cases, um, how, how far into the future does the strategy look um, and how, how far is the, the planning um, for, for that? So we um, started as an organisation planning for the workforce of 2030. So being the, the, safe, um, the health and safety regulator, we're really looking at how, you know, the, the workforce will be working in 2030. Um, and that was the beginnings of, of a transformation program. We still have that um, sort of a vision in mind when we're describing what we need from an analytics perspective. But operationally, we're really focused on sort of a two to three year delivery window. And so the structure that we've put in place now is really 
done with the knowledge that it will only last us for two years and that we will need a reset at that point. And of course, along the way, we will constantly reevaluate are we set up in the right way to deliver to those outcomes or do we need to make adjustments now? But I think um, to the, the point about sort of building for future um, and not just building for today, or well, sometimes you do have to build for today as well because <laughs> you can get a bit ahead of yourself recruiting, um, you know, these modern um, leading edge um, analytics capabilities when if you don't have the, the platform ready for them today, they will move on really quickly. Yeah, totally, totally agree. That's great. Um, awesome. So staying on the, on the topic of teams, um, I was hoping that we could explore a little bit of um, team motivation and in particular during recent times and how all of our lives have have changed over the last couple of years and, and looks like it, they've changed, you know, in, in, to a degree, there's been a change that will stay. Um, so maybe, uh, Michelle, um, if we can start with, with yourself, uh, if, you can tell us, if you can tell us a little bit about motivating teams and what's changed uh, during the, the last couple of years and what do you think is going to stay looking forward? Well, um, certainly... What motivates teams is to have a common goal, um, particularly in the data world. Most people, they want to achieve an outcome for their business. Uh, it, it's not just about being in data for the sake of it. They actually want to be able to help transform um, the, the business units that they, that they are within. And so having a, a common goal um, and having success in sight for them is really, really important and then be able to have a progression of those goals um, and having teams being able to work together towards that with some degree of commonality. If you don't have that, you have team siloing, you have competitiveness, and then you, you, you start to create disunity and it, it can become um, a non-motivating experience for some people across those teams. So common, common goal is really good. Um, the other thing is just being set up for success. So there's nothing more demotivating than um, somebody who wants to be able to uh, create great insights and solve problems for the business to spend most of their time wrangling data or preparing it or trying to get access to it or access to the system. So that's that's a massive um, demotivator. Um, so, so getting those barriers out of the way is really important. Um, but also I find um, with my teams that I like to make sure that we don't have people that... Um, you know, some people that do all the cool work and then some people that keep the lights on. It's really important that everybody gets their fair share of being able to run what they have built, perhaps, but then also um, at least 50% of their role is to be able to innovate and build more. And so the emphasis for, for my teams is, also, is always, if you've built something, how can you productionize it so that no human ever has to touch that again? And then you can move on and do um, really motivating stuff. Um, so they're the kinds of things that I like to see across my teams that I find are, are the most motivating factors. Of course, in the last two years, the working environment has changed. Um, and with my teams, we've, we've talked a lot about um, how life can um, be hard and, and how can be, people can be motivated to continue. We're all kind of used to it now and, and coming back into the workforce we're suddenly realising, well, you know, if I have to travel into the office, I actually might lose something into two hours of my work time. So, so I think balance is the key. I don't think it's binary. We're all back in the office now. I think 
balance and um, people are excited about being able to meet together and get around a whiteboard. There's no replacing that. I've even experienced that in the last few weeks. Just meeting face-to-face and play with post-it notes is can actually, um, you know, replace three or four meetings. So um, I think we might find ourselves in a nice, healthy balance. And, and one of the things that I don't want to see that we go back to in terms of flexibility and diversity is where parents are finding that they don't, that, you know, their children are coming home to empty houses or they're worried about, um, you know, their families. I think, you know, a, a good thing that's come out of, of working from home is that um, people aren't worried about their children coming home to an empty house anymore. And I have a lot of people in my team like that and being able to find a balance where people can give themselves um, in their, their working day and still balance that with their family, I think is actually quite wonderful. Isn't it? It is great. It's one of the best things that have, has come out of, um, out of this time. And, um, you know, what, what really, uh, one of the things that really resonated uh, from, from what you said, Michelle, is um, getting to see people again and how, you know, how exciting that is. And sometimes like, I, I question myself whether I'm too old school that I've been excited to go to workshops where there's people. Um, I'm looking forward to, to events. Um, with Data Futurology, we have an event coming up in Melbourne and I can't wait to see you guys in person. And uh, it's, it's, it's great. I don't know if, if um, MJ or Catherine, if you guys feel the same and, and also how, how have you navigated motivation in the teams during, during this period? I went to my first in-person conference last week or the week week before I think it was, and I was so excited just to see 3D people again and engage in that conversation. And I tell you, you've never seen so many excited vendor salespeople as well to have captive audiences in the per- in the flesh. Um, it was lovely. And um, I think, yeah, it, it, it's good to to have that opportunity to return to work I think there are some wonderful things that have come out of the last two years in terms of remote working as well and it would be a real shame to lose those so I think it's going to be a, a real balance and I think um, in terms of sort of tying it back to the motivation piece as well I think um, it comes back to giving people choice and giving people the control and I know from our experience at WorkSafe, we started um, in terms of what the, the post-pandemic working routine would look like, started with um, instruction that it would be predominantly office-based, but that wasn't um, firm enough for people to understand, well, what does predominant mean? And so then we went to three days a week. That was too restrictive and too um, prescriptive about what was expected. So I think they're, they're saying the same thing, really. But I think at the end of the day, it's that sense that I still have the control over designing my work life and my home life and something that works for me. Um, And I think in terms of that's probably what's really been reinforced for me over the past two years in terms of leadership is that people have changed their entire life routines, not just their work routine, but their whole life routine. Um, And as Michelle said, you know, they may have cancelled after-school care programs um, because they don't need them anymore because they're at home and the kids can, you know, be in the room next door um, while you're finishing up work in the study. Um, So people have made fundamental changes to their lifestyles that they're not necessarily keen to, to change again. 
um, as we return to office. So I think, again, putting the control back in the hands of your team um, and designing approaches that work for most um, and trust that people are going to do the right things. And those that don't, you have disciplinary measures that you can you can pick up should you need to, but design assuming that people are going to do the right thing. Um, that's that's my advice. I love that. That is that is great. Thank you. And MJ, from from your side, any uh, any tips on 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 motivation, on um, helping the teams lean into into impact, uh, like can come from their work, and and particularly from what we've learned in the last uh, from what you've learned in the last couple of years. Mm. Oh, you know, there was so much in, in what both Michelle and Catherine were saying around agency and control and, you know, having a sense of ownership um, about uh, your work. And the fact that the last few years especially is has really shifted what that looks like, you know, and what I think is people are motivated and curious when they can bring their whole selves to work and mm-hmm. everything a saying a really common saying it's really but when they can bring their whole selves to work when they feel a sense of ownership around both their work environment and how their organization behaves what that means then is the environment that produces the most motivated teams perhaps is dynamic and it's highly personal Um, and in a sense it's no different to customer engagement right it changes over time and it's highly personal so I think against that backdrop, there are two things that come to mind. Um, the first that we've had to really dig deep at Reese around is how do we create spaces to listen? Because um, the conditions required to create curious and engaged teams, they keep changing, right? So you need an effective feedback mechanism to know when the current settings are working or when they've stopped working and when they need to change and especially in the past few years, what might have been a mechanism like just a walking coffee meeting you can't do anymore because we're not out and about walking if you were based in Melbourne and lockdown for a lot of it. Um, and, and part of fostering this feedback is that people need to feel safe. And so that means a mixture of communication methods, methods, you know, whether that's more formally or less formal practices woven into your day-to-day It's about meeting people where they're at and what makes sense to them. And particularly as we've been offline, uh, well, online, but not in person for a large part of the last few years, we've had to think a lot about how do you creatively create those spaces in a 2D sort of world where people do still feel connected in. So those listening spaces has been a really interesting, you know, piece to work through. Um, And then the second sort of area, and this is, very much um, top of mind for me because in, at Reese we have you know some pretty big ambitions around what we're doing with data, but that also means doing that digitally and setting that it is harder to see to completion what we start because you can't see all of it. You don't have the in-person interactions around just what is actually going on. Everything is is communicated online until more recently when we all opened up, um, and a key driver of seeing things to completion and trusting that things get seen to completion um, is consistency um, and particularly consistent action because what you get when we take what's deeply listened to and reliably acted on is that teams are given that sense of agency and, and ownership you know and I think to Michelle's point about 
having an outcome to work towards, that's a big part of fostering motivation, doing it in a now hybrid digital and in-person world that I think will continue is going to be an interesting challenge to how we structure our ways of working and how we encourage safe spaces that perhaps, you know, used to be more assumed givens. Um, we, we now need to be a lot more intentional um, around. So, yeah, it's an interesting space to be in. I don't think we've cracked it yet, um, but we're certainly really exploring that deeply. That's excellent. I I love that answer. Um, and I love the, the the emphasis on the listening spaces. Uh, that's, that's excellent. I found that um, over the years, I've um, been continually learning more about psychological safety and, and how, how beneficial that is to the work environment and to the relationships. And one of the things that I, that I recently uh, learned, uh, which was uh, when I was, um, ha- I had Carrie Jones on the podcast. She's um, from Countdown, New Zealand. Um, and she was saying how her team gave her the feedback that she has created really good psychological safety with her team, but the, the team was new and they were still forming so that there wasn't yet psychological safety between the team members. And, she, and, and we got into the conversation to discuss how psychological safety is something that the recipient of feedback gives that or provides a psychological safety first in order to allow for the feedback to be received. Um, and that was that was a new that new learning for me that I was like, oh, I love I love the clarity coming out of this. Um, how how do you guys see it? A, a few a few nods there. Um, yeah, how how do you guys see this? Maybe Catherine. Uh, I just think it's so hard. Um, the psychological safety piece is one that that we've got a bit of focus on. It's so hard in a remote environment. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's really hard to maintain. The levels of empathy um, and care for each other and you know in the early days you do your daily check-ins and make sure everyone's okay and I just think behaviors start to change a bit um, when you've got that persistent solely virtual relationship um, and so I, I do think that that some office presence is necessary if you are focusing on building culture. Um, so having just uh, settled into annual design, culture is obviously going to be, be a big piece for us. And I think some of that, you, you really do need that in-person collaboration and interaction to build that personal care and empathy um, and create those psychologically safe environments because I think um yeah, keyboard warriorism can emerge a bit in virtual environments and it's um, while it encourages um, transparency and, um, you know, honesty, it's not always given the, the necessary empathetic um, spin to the narrative or lens to the narrative, I suppose. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how far we go or how far we see things accelerated with that return to office and the impact that has on the culture for the team. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, one of the challenging uh, bits that I was finding hard is that um, in, in an online setting, um, you could be asking, or at least this happened to me, that I felt like I, I, I was asking the right questions uh, in terms of checking in with people and, and seeing how they're going. But sometimes you couldn't get the same read of somebody 
as you would get in person. And then as a result, you don't know which which areas they, they would like to open up about or you want you can ask a bit more about. And, and as we're returning to the office, I'm, I'm finding that the, the connections are able to be created are, are much, much better. Um, Michelle, how about, how about from your side? How has this piece been and how is it tying into, into the culture uh, for your teams? Um, so um, my, my previous team I'd been leader of for some time and, and when I um, commenced building it uh, literally from scratch, I um, really had a commitment to great behaviours in the team. Um, in fact, I had a zero tolerance for poor behaviours and that has paid off in spades over the years to the point where there is this team that has its own brand and part of that brand is the culture within the team and that it's safe safe within the environment. It's not without its challenges. No team is perfect. Um, but everybody's working towards a common goal of improving um, uh, data across the organisation. And, and that works. And that's from me downwards to my leadership team and to the leadership layers beneath that. Um, and we often talk a lot about speaking up and, and I deliberately make myself vulnerable and available so that, um, you know, people want to hear what I'm thinking. It's quite funny. And so, you know, I've spent a lot of time during COVID just having sessions where it's just Q&A for an hour and they can ask whatever they want. And quite often the question is completely not related to work at all, but that doesn't matter. The point is that we are continuing to build rapport. It is difficult to pick up on body language and pick up on the, the um, you know, the, the crowd you know, that's feel, the feeling that you have when you're presenting to a crowd, that is tricky. And I'm really looking forward to um, being able to do that um, with my larger team, um, if we're all allowed to be together, you know, in the, in the workplace. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a constant process of trying to figure out how to continue to motivation, take away barriers that are, that, that are preventing people from being um, motivated and optimal um, at their workplace. It's just about asking questions. And it's it's not the same things now as it used to be. Qu quite interestingly, one of the things that was a big concern in coming back to work was, well, would it be great if we had have some discount for parking? You know, we, we don't actually, we don't want to travel it. Now, who would have thought of that before? Yeah. You know, if, if the organisation could go, just arrange some bulk parking discount, that would change everything for me. So, um, you know, just sort of thinking innovatively around um, how to, um, you know, what are the new barriers for people, why people don't want to come into the office, quite often it could just be public transport, um, is, is, is something that I, that I work on with, with the team a lot. So actually making myself available online and uh, is really important. Unfortunately, that means I'm on chat constantly. <laughs> that's, but that it is, is what it is. Oh, that's excellent. That is very, very nice. And and I love the the um, the high availability for the team. Uh, the 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 team check ins with with Q and A for an hour. That's that's excellent. And I've, I've definitely um, I've, I've been surprised um, in the last in the last few years that as a as a leader 
I found myself, and I think it happens to a lot of people, that the stance that you want to take is to kind of like to keep your challenges and your problems to yourself and, and trying to get um, create an encouraging environment for the team and you're supporting them with the challenges that they're facing. And I've been surprised to learn that the team, as, as you know, as you were saying, Michelle, like the team wants to hear about the challenges that you're facing and the perspective that you get, that you have, and how much context that, that gives them and um, and puts things into into perspective in terms of how the whole team is working together as a as a whole. That's right. They want they want a connection, and so that that is part of building that connection, letting them into my world, and I'm quite comfortable doing that. I love it. I love it. That is great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, MJ, I wanted, I wanted to see if we could stay with the, with the topic of culture. Um, I'm, I'm loving it. Uh, and and um, in particular, one of, one of the areas um, that has been challenging around the industry uh, in recent times has been around um, attracting the right talent, getting the, the right people in the team, um, hiring and, and obviously uh, retention, uh, all closely tied into to culture. Um, what what are the what are the type of um, culture based initiatives that you that you've been taking um, to in order to attract and retain staff um, over over the past couple of years during this period? Mm, it's a great question, um, and I think it's when we think initiatives, it's easy or tempting perhaps to consider them as telic in its nature, you know, there's a start and an end, but culture in itself is a, is a bit of an evolving beast. I think in terms of culture, there are two elements that, that come to mind that are pretty important, um, particularly in data. Humility is really important. Um, and to me, I think that's it's because organizations realize value from data when it actually changes how someone makes decisions or interacts with their customers, having extracted insight from their data. And, and so to realize that value is a need to acknowledge that there's something to change. And so culturally, I think the humility to have the conversations about changing how we work is, is actually quite an important piece to embed in organizational DNA. Now, the second thing is, I think, temporal abstraction. And what this refers to is an organization's availability to think on multiple time horizons, you know, whether that's to be expedient, it might be expedient and attractive on a three-month basis to do something can have longer-term implications, right? So that's sort of the second cultural nuance we try and weave into how people think about um, problems and how to work together. And then kind of thinking about these two elements then and how to find that um, in talent and retain talent. What's challenging is that these elements, I don't think, at least to me, I don't think they are an innate attribute of a person. Um, you could take a, a top performing engineer from one of the fangs and they could very well underperform in an Australian corporate because, you know, the tooling's not to their liking or their colleagues don't speak the same language. Um, so I think a more pragmatic perspective on the issue of talent is what can organizations do to achieve the best performance out of the talent they can attract within mind these qualities that we want to foster 
in, in the talent. And there's a bit to unpack that. So, mm. you know, the talent and organization can relates to their value proposition. And a startup might offer someone agility, high octane environment, lots of autonomy and flexibility, lack of legacy debt. A large organization can offer impact and scale and multi-year investment horizons. So we ask ourselves, what kind of organization are we um, and do we want to be? And what's the talent, what, what does the best talent profile embedding those cultural attributes look like at our organization? Um, and so it's, it's been pretty tricky to unpick because it is a shifting piece. Some of you know, the strategies we've employed is working that into our hiring um, structures, our rubrics, and the way we think about people and have conversations with them and being really clear about what that looks like, you know, for us at race. That's great. I love, I love that perspective of the, the cultural alignment and the cultural fit. Um, and that, you know, it almost, it almost needs to go both ways uh, that as, as a culture gets created, um, uh, people can, you know, contribute and become a part of it, but understanding that it's not, it's not necessarily going to be for, for everyone. Um, that's, that's excellent. Um, Catherine, from from your perspective, um, what what are some 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 ways that you think we we can um, attract some of the talent that that we need in our organizations and help retain that talent uh, over over time? Um, it's really hard at the moment. I think we're facing into a market um, like we've never seen before, and it's always been a competitive and bespoke market, um, and. It's, I guess it's, it's just incredibly challenging at the moment. And I think as um, MJ was saying, being really clear on our value proposition is absolutely key um, when it comes to advertising for new talent um, in the market. You know, being a government agency, we're not necessarily um, on the bleeding edge when it comes to innovation or maybe we can't pay the salaries that some of your um, big finance corporations can, um, but we have purpose. You know, we have the, the community impact, um, the data for good mandate, um, and, you know, really passionate people. Um, we've got flexible work arrangements. We've got those sorts of things. So I think it's, it's about being really clear about the value proposition. Um, and then it's choice for those who are in the market about whether it's, it's the right fit for them or not because you don't want to start off on the wrong foot. You just won't retain them um, if you lure them under false pre pretenses in the first place. So being really clear about what it is you can offer um, beyond just dollars. It's not all about dollars and even less so um, now as we emerge out of the pandemic and people have really had a chance to weigh up what's important in life. Um, and so I think people are even more willing now to trade off on dollars for other elements um, that, that uh, you know, fit their values and, um, and life priorities. Um, and then retaining internal talent, it's all about sense of purpose again, um, making them feel that the work they're doing is meaningful and valuable. Um, and that comes to, as leaders, to, to the, our clarity of vision, um, strategy, alignment with business strategy, um, and the outcomes that, that the business is achieving, um, and then providing those, you know, energised environments around collaboration and co-creation and um, 
and different things will inspire different people. Um, but being able to work with people that do inspire you and challenge you and um, I guess that's the benefit, I think, of, of the, the players in our industry in analytics and data is that we do have lots of creative, kooky types that are just fun and um and inspiring to to collaborate and talk shop with so that's for me um may not be for everyone but um yeah I think there's it, it's a really challenging place um we've also you know I'm not a big fan of hanging on to talent beyond um the expiry date so you know, our role again as leaders is to help people develop and be ready for their next role so think setting them free when they're ready to go and um and ready for the next step you know we have an obligation to do that as well and um the talent that's coming out of universities is incredible so I, I think certainly the talent pipeline and into the entry-level roles um we're just seeing such um yeah just such good talent in that space that you could you know employ double what you've got in terms of vacancies so there, there are some positives there um but it is it is a pretty challenging space at the moment oh i totally agree that it's a challenging space i know that at least from my perspective or at least in my case um in the last couple of years i've had the highest number of resignations that i've ever had and you know i've been taking it to heart. I'm like, have I have I changed? <laughs> I used to have a good, a good record. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Uh, the attraction of talent is tough. The retention of, of staff. And then the other piece, and, and, and Michelle, I wanted to get your thoughts on on, on this, is um, upskilling, upskilling the, the team uh, and upskilling upskilling the organization. Um, do you have do you have any any uh, innovative approaches or or anything in particular that, that you like to do to to help with with staff training uh, in data with increasing their their expertise anything like that from from your side? Um, I'll I'll talk more about what I'd like to do. And what, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that for many um, data scientists that are at the, the top of their profession, there is, there is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of hope and they join organisations and they want to be part of changing the organisation and they can see it and they can taste it, but they can't actually make it happen. And there's a lot of, and, and choices on their side. So they can leave and they, they can go and find a, another role elsewhere. Um, I think that there's a lot more work to do inside organisations to really pinpoint and attract talent. And yes, there's there's um, you know motivated teams and how you work, but um, I was attracted to my workplace by the data that they have, right? So what data have you got? What have you got to work with? So I was like, hello, I, I want to I want a piece of that data. I want to be part of that world. There's the there's a lot of work to do and we're extremely immature across all industries in being able to factor data into decision-making. And, and I don't mean, oh, we know more about our customers or something like that and it's personalization and we can market to them better. It's things like if you gave your senior executive a really important risk decision and you gave them extra data points, would they make a different decision? Would they know what to do? with those additional data points. It's actually got less to do with 
give them more data and more about actually let's unravel our decision-making processes across any organization, figure out how we can then inject data points into that and how can that um, dis- how, you know, how can that be new factors into that decision-making process? Because if you can imagine an organization that many of its decisions are regulated or audited, um, making a snap change in how you make that decision because you've got more data is not something that they probably feel very comfortable doing. And so therein lies the frustration from data scientists, you know, I'm bringing all this stuff in front of you, but you're not actually changing the way you're doing your business. So I think there's a lot of work to do from leadership down who are not necessarily um, being part of the data world. They'd like to be, but we need to actually bring the the traditional business leaders together with um, the data world to help mesh that together so that the data workers can feel that they've actually been part of steering the business into a different direction. And that's really tricky. And that's where you see, you know, um, uh, that's where you want to see data scientists seeing where they can make a change, knowing that's their goal, and then they can actually work towards that rather than, wow, you're a really great, cool data scientist, think up a golden nugget, and then we'll figure out whether that's useful. I akin this whole process to very much like the Moneyball movie. You know, we're, we're still finding data scientists like we used to find baseball players. Do they look good? Yep. We actually need to be much more specific. Um, and, and, there's, and, and we need to construct our end-to-end process so we can actually use them to their full potential. And I don't think that um, a lot of organisations, you know, use their data scientists to their full potential. Oh, I completely agree. And, <laughs> and, and, and I love having that, that as the benchmark of would the decision change with, with additional, additional data? And there's, there's a lot to overcome there. There's even like cognitive, cognitive biases um, and, and, um, and the, the data literacy that how comfortable is the person to get, you know, start getting the, in the wrestling in the mud with the data, uh, whether they're interacting with it in a meaningful way. Um, MJ, how about from from your side? Do, do you see do you see it as a as a similar challenge in terms of being able to um, have a bigger impact on decisions and and how how do you see ways that we can that we can help uh, move the dial on this one? Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I, I don't think as a field in analytical or data and analytics literacy, we have converged on an optimal solution. You know, I think this is the first generation perhaps of knowledge workers for whom technology has completely moved past what we were taught in tertiary education. Um, I think to build on what um, Michelle was saying, we, we're also exploring the limits of organization-wide data literacy as well. You know, it's reasonably uncontroversial when we talk about building expertise in in data and analytics teams, you know, communities of practice or learning through gamification, formal, less formal structures. There are options there and professionals do tend to, you know, take to these opportunities. But then if we expand past that and think about an organization-wide view, and that's where decisions are made, right? It's organizationally want to change how decisions are made. It's not clear how much expertise people are willing to acquire as part of their day job. 
you know, for a business analyst who might have spent the last two decades using Excel, for instance, it's not 100% obvious as to why their jobs connect to skilling up in Python-based data analysis or, you know, working in Jupyter Notebooks or testing and orchestration. Um, so under these circumstances, the innovation, I think, needs to be in how do we help people the connect the purpose of what they do, how they're making decisions to the need for increasing expertise at all. Um, and that's been quite a big focus area for, for my team in that while we are quite engineering heavy um, from a profile perspective, nothing we do is initiated without an enablement component to it because all that investment really is realized when someone changes how they do something. And, and so if there isn't that connection of how someone, it could be someone in our retail network who is front of counter with the customer. If they've been given data and they haven't changed how they deal with the customer, then we've not done our job um, to partner with them. Uh, and so I think a lot of the innovation needs to be in that space. How are we enabling people and how do we see people the, help, help people see the need to be enabled as well? It's a work in progress. And it's and it's so so challenging to to be able to um, help, as you said, like throughout the entire organization to the edges of the organization to help them realize the value of of data driven decision making or data informed decision making and be able to act differently as a result. Um, Catherine, how about how about from your side? Any any thoughts on on how to better uh, incentivize people to be open? to a different possibility that the data might show? Um, no. Um, no, I agree. I agree with what the ladies have said. Um, it's it's our biggest challenge, you know, the, the data and the tech and the analytics themselves are the easy part. Um, and if they just sit on a shelf and go wasted, then no one wins out of that. And as we've said, um, analysts will you know, become unhappy and they'll leave because they don't feel that they're adding any value. Um, I haven't tackled enterprise data literacy yet, but it's on the roadmap for the back end of the calendar year. So um, I am all ears for anyone that's got any um, documentation or um, experience in that space. Um, but I think uh, change management and comms are probably the two areas of focus um, that kind of make or break um, any sort of analytics product or deployment or um, tech implementation. And they're typically things that we don't do very well in our space. Um, so there's certainly a heightened awareness um, for the need of change management and comms. And they're actually two things that are doubly needed when you've got a remote working environment as well. Um, so I think that's just been heightened over the past two years. Um, so the, the actual roles that we've looked to dedicate um, to, to change management in a more focused manner in our new org design um, and the comms piece really looking on sort of tying that into the change piece as well um, because they're not, as I said, they're not necessarily skills that come naturally to analytics professionals um, and so I think recruiting for them specifically um, is, is much more valuable or even seeking outside support from um, professionals that do it even better. 
Um, so yeah, not much more to add. Oh, very, very true. It's it's challenging. It's definitely an area where, as an industry, we can get better. And and um, the uh, a really good tip that I got from uh, Lachlan Wallace, who is at Woodside, um, they um, they were trying to get people to uh, in in LNG plants that manage the LNG plants. They were trying to get them to become more data driven in their decisions. And what they did at the beginning, they aroused curiosity, and they said. Um, they had a message that said something like, um, people who have done this shift um, have gotten 2% extra output from the plant. Would you like to know what they did? And people had to opt in. Um, I thought that that was, that was really, really nice to say, hey, here, you're dangling a carrot. I've got something here for you, but you um, click here if you want to know. Uh, so it was a bit of clickbait, but I thought it, it worked really well. Um, one, one thing you did remind me of, Michelle, I don't know where I heard it, but um, an organisation that actually partnered or buddied data scientists with the executive um, team. Mm-hmm. So partnered those individuals as a bit of a, a data literacy initiative. And so you could get the learning imparted to the data scientists about the sort of core um, business drivers and challenges that an executive is listening to on a daily basis. And similarly, the um, exec has got access to, you know, this data-driven, hungry, creative um, technician who can provide ideas about how they might be able to optimise their decision-making. So maybe that's something we'll give a go. That is yeah, a that's a good idea. Yeah, that is great. That is great. Thank you so much. I just looked at time. I can't, I can't believe how quickly this time has gone past. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear about your experience, your perspectives, your thoughts in the industry. MJ, Michelle, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. As I said, it's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thanks, Felipe. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.